punishment and society. Um, it's a paper that's about the relationship between punishment and state failure as viewed from the perspective of people who live at the margins. Um, now, before I go into the paper, I just want to spend a few minutes situating it within my bigger project. Um, so I'm currently writing a book manuscript that has been contracted with um, Clarendon Series at OUP. And the book basically brings together my PhD research, um, which I finished in 2013, and work I've done since completing my default um, at Oxford. Um, now, to explain this bigger project in a little bit more depth, um, the book basically started off as an ethnographic study of how citizens um, on a council estate in England experience the state in their everyday lives. Um, and I was initially inspired to study how the new Labour government's anti-social behaviour policies were experienced by people at the receiving end of these policies. Um, and to do this, I'd singled out a number of council estates all in the same town um, where I knew that the local authority had been quite keen to implement and enforce these policies. Um, what I didn't expect to find, perhaps naively, when I started doing my ethnographic research, was the extent to which people on the estates seem to be expressing their support for these punitive policies. So people regularly asked for harsher punishment of offenders, they wanted more policing, and a lot of people complained that the law had become too lenient. And what struck me about that was that people were expressing these sort of sentiments despite the fact that many had very negative experiences in views of the criminal justice system and the state more broadly. So there's a lot of antagonism um, with regards to the state. I'm going to talk about that later. Um, so for me, there's a puzzle, right? So people, on the one hand, support punitive policies. On the other hand, they don't actually trust the state to have a legitimacy, at least not in their own eyes. And my book really is an attempt to make sense of this um, puzzle, and it, it does so by posing, or rather by revisiting, um, some fundamental questions that I think anthrop uh, bring anthropology in conversation with criminology, theories of punishment, and social theory more broadly. And those are questions about why and how it is that people come to engage with and even show support for policies and state practices that we can say are repressive, according to some scholars, even anti-democratic. And more recently, I should say, as I've been going back to um, the field and sort of been living through an, a couple of general elections and Brexit um, as well, I've sort of become interested to um, understand how these experiences of the state also impact on people's relationships and views of democracy more broadly. Um, now, I approach these questions in the book through an ethnographic analysis of everyday encounters between citizens and the state across a range of different areas of the state. So I talk about the welfare system, how people experience that, the criminal justice system, obviously, but also their interactions with housing and local democracy. And one of the things that I write about in my book and I think about a lot is that the way residents use the state in their daily lives doesn't really fit in neatly with the state's own categories of order. Um, for example, people on the estate often use the criminal justice system as an arena in which to pursue uh, personal disputes. Um, it's an arena where loyalties and commitments are acted out that law enforcement officials might not even be aware of or care about. Women learn to play the benefit system, so to subvert the system, um, to protect their family members, their commitments and their loved ones. And people, even to a limited extent, take over state powers themselves when the state 
fail to provide them with the protection that they need. And so my central argument in the book is that these sort of daily acts of drawing the state into people's daily lives are best understood as bottom-up attempts to personalize the powers of the state. And what I mean by that is that they're sort of attempts to domesticate what residents know to be a hostile and repressive system by trying to subject it to the logic of their own daily struggles for security and survival and the social relationships that are important to them in their daily lives. And I argue that these personalized uses of the state really identify the need to further unpack what we actually mean when we talk about <coughs> popular punitivism um, by drawing attention to the ways in which citizens' expectations of the state are bound up with a whole host of political, social and economic inequities that they face in their everyday lives. So really at the core of my book then is a sort of attempt to develop a theoretical account of state-citizen relations that brings anthropology to bear on criminology and social theory. Um, Okay, all of that sounds a bit heavy. (laughs) So what I want to do now is move on to the paper um, that I've written because, well, at least that's the hope, um, that uh, what I'm hoping is that the paper will illustrate some of the bigger ideas that I'm sort of exploring um, in more depth in the book. And what I want to do today, um, also in light of the audience, um, I have is to address one particular aspect of state-citizen relations that is central to although by far not exhaustive of the daily encounters that people have with the state. Um, And that is the kind of everyday relations that people have with the police and law enforcement officials. And um, the starting point for this paper are theories of punishment that have made sense of popular punitivism in terms of narratives of ontological uh, insecurity and the return of a contemporary Leviathan. And I'll explain that in a little bit more depth in a minute. But here are some of the basic questions that I'm asking in the paper. How does an ethnographic assessment of everyday uses of law and order amongst marginalised groups complicate the standard narrative of a punitive public? What happens if we start from the assumption that the state is not a generative source of order, at least not if judged from the perspectives of some of law's own subjects. And what are the broader implications of such a view for theorising the relationship between the public on the one hand and the criminal justice system on the other? Now, the case of the council states where I work provides a good illustration, I think, for sort of exploring or thinking through these questions. Um, local residents on the estate often express demands for more policing, I've already said this, and harsher punishment for local offenders. And yet, to interpret these calls for law and order as evidence of a sort of straightforward popular desire for authority would mean to miss what I think is an important point. And that is that residents appropriate the state into their daily lives, sometimes in ways that align with the law, but often also for purposes that escape the official representatives of law and order. And what's more, where the state fails to provide people with the protection they want, residents fall back onto informal violence that then gets condemned as unlawful or vigilante violence by uh, the state or state actors. Um, I think the ethnographic study that I'm going to present you really suggests two points that I'm going to come back to in the conclusion I think first it sort of suggests that dominant theories of punishment have adopted an understanding of order that is probably too narrowly focused on the state. And second, I want to suggest um, that we ought to rethink 
what we mean by popular punitivism and the implications that this has for the way we think through the relationship between criminal justice and democracy or the democratic public more broadly. And again, I'm going to come back to these points later. Um, just a few words on data and uh, methodology and all that kind of stuff, and, and also the estate itself where I work. So the bulk of my research was carried out actually on a single um, estate, which is a fairly typical sort of post-industrial council estate built in the 1950s, initially to accommodate um, the workers of a nearby situated car factory. Um, like most other estates in the country, it was a relatively affluent working-class estate in the post-war decades, um, largely populated by white British people, but there's always a sizable minority of citizens of Afro-Caribbean descent. Um, over the years, the estate's population has grown to just over 11,000 people today, so it actually counts amongst the largest estates in the country. Um, since the 1980s, again, just like many other states in the country, it has heavily been affected by industrial decline, um, neoliberal policies in the economy, but also the housing sector, all of which have meant that today the estate is quite a deprived area, and certainly the people that I ended up doing most of my research with um, have all encountered... Um, problems with sort of long-term unemployment or at least drifting in and out of extremely insecure and flexible employment, welfare dependence, and also what I'm going to talk about later in the paper, crime and, and violence. Um, since 2011, matters have only um, gotten worse for people, which is obviously a direct consequence of the um, austerity politics that um, have been implemented by um, the coalition and then the conservative governments. Again, I can talk about that more later if anyone's interested. Um, in terms of my own research, um, I've carried out research by means of participant observation. So my default was in anthropology. Um, and what that meant is that, is that I spent an initial period of about 19 months, 19 or 20 months, living with families um, in social housing. So I stayed with a total of, I think, four or five families, um, and volunteering in a local community centre on a daily basis. Um, and since then, I've been going back lots for follow-up trips and, and more research I've, I've, I've done. Um, I follow people in their daily lives in a sort of classical anthropological fashion, I guess. So, you know, I participate in their relationships. I was childminding kids. I went out drinking with people. I went with them to um, welfare offices. I tried help, to help them with any kind of bureaucratic matters they had. Um, and it was gradually over time um, that people sort of trusted began to trust me more and more and to relate to me not so much as a researcher, but as someone who lived with them, you know, as someone who, who, who was a resident of sorts. And people sort of started taking me in as, as a friend, as a resident, sometimes also sort of fictive kin member. Um, and it was through those kinds of relationships of trust that I think I was able to then sort of gain access to some of the experiences and views that I'm going to present today. Um, now, I'm well aware that sort of in the wake of um, the controversy um, around Alice Goffman's book on the run, um, participant observation is something that has been debated a lot and the sort of ethical and legal challenges um, that come with doing research, um, particularly in marginalised communities. And I'm not going to talk about that in, in the presentation because I don't have time, but again, something we can talk about later if anyone's interested to, to, to ask me more questions about that. 
What I want to do for now is move on to the theories of punishment that form the backdrop of my paper, and then I'm going to come to my ethnography. Okay, so theories of punishment. Now, the public's presumed vulnerability um, is something that has become a central reference point in contemporary criminal justice discourse. And in the UK, this is perhaps best illustrated in the politics of law and order that became central to the new Labour government's electoral campaign in the lead-up to the 1997 elections. After 18 years out of government and four electoral defeats in a row, new Labour basically sought to mobilise popular support by actively repositioning itself as a party that was going tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. And, I mean, I'm sure this is all kind of known to, to you um, in this room, but just to say very briefly, you know, the government argued that the criminal justice system had been driven for too long by an elitist culture um, and had basically ignored the suffering of ordinary citizens um, and that to, in order to put this right, the balance of the criminal justice system would have to be restored, swinging away from the rights of criminals or offenders towards those of law-abiding citizens. Um, a view of rights was endorsed that came to see the victim of crime as the new idealised citizen in need of state protection. Now, the policies that were implemented amounted to a sort of wholesale rethinking of the criminal justice system, away from the sort of welfareist ethos of the post-war decades that had been guarded by what um, Ian Lotus called the liberal guardians towards a more punitive and populist stance. Again, the details of that process don't really concern me today, but just to say very briefly that they happened um, in, in, they happened sort of on, on different levels. So first, within the area of policing, you know, there were massive reforms implemented under the new Labour government, under the banner of community and neighbourhood policing. Um, the police were required to implement permanent neighbourhood policing schemes um, or teams and to improve high visibility on the streets. Um, second, there were also changes within the local authorities themselves. So local authority bodies were required to take on an active role in basically policing antisocial behaviour and low-level crime, you know. And you, you, you've had a situation where, and I find that quite astonishing, and I write about that a lot in the book, where um, bodies that historically would have been associated more with the welfare state, such as housing um, associations, um, Social services, um, youth services were required to take on an active role in policing um, problem populations. And then finally, and probably most obviously, um, there were massive changes within the criminal law itself, as the new Labour government implemented lots and lots of new policies and penal powers. Probably the best-known example of that at the time was the ASPO, the Antisocial Behaviour Order, the sort of criminal, civil criminal hybrid that allows for the criminalisation of behaviour deemed antisocial by a member of the public. Now, Nikki Lacey in The Prisoner's Dilemma has described the expansion of criminal justice in the UK and beyond as a central democratic paradox. What she says, I quote her here, um, is that it's a paradox whereby criminal justice has been driven into punitive direction despite, or perhaps even because, of popular and hence literally democratic support. Recent narratives um, have seen this sort of turn towards more anti-democratic uh, policies as evidence of a broader crisis of legitimacy that governments are confronting in the face of rampant insecurities. What do these insecurities consist in? Well, different explanations or explanatory models have been advanced, and I'm not going to go into detail here, um, 
But just to say very briefly, um, for David Garland, um, in his famous work, The Culture of Control, he sort of sees these insecurities as deriving from heightened experiences of crime as a normal social fact. So one of the things he says in the book is that as citizens are coming to deal with the predicaments that are posed by daily threats of crime, as well as a whole whole host of changes um, in their lifestyle, they're experiencing you know, a form of ontological insecurity which basically predisposes them to be more punitive towards strangers, outsiders and criminals. Others, um, and I'm thinking here of people like Louis Vacon, have criticised Garland basically for paying too much emphasis on the cultural conditions of late modernity. Um, and what he would say is that the sort of punitive upsurge that we've seen in the UK and in the US and certain other countries should be understood as part of a political project of the remaking of the state in light of civil disorder and insecurities that themselves were unleashed by decades of neoliberal rule. Now, I think, obviously, there are important differences in these sort of cultural or political or economic meta-narratives of the punitive term, but they do tend to agree um, on a central point, or at least a point that's central to my analysis. And that is that academics, and I think we can probably add policymakers, tend to depict a view of citizens who are in need of authoritative reassurance in the face of their own vulnerability. Now, it comes as no surprise that the figure of the Leviathan looms large, and Peter Ramsey points out um, that punitive shifts in criminal justice, and I quote him here, seem to raise the themes of Thomas Hobbes' account of an absolutist sovereignty inaugurated by an insecure population. Now, Hobbes' account of the Leviathan is, of course, well-known, right? It's the idea that people leave the state of nature, which is governed precisely by insecurity and fear, to subject themselves to a centralised authority that then promises to protect them and, and people's property. Hobbes' view of state law is based, then, on an assumption that societies only function in the presence of a centralised authority that maintains and enforces order. And I think applied to the con- uh, contemporary context of criminal justice, the argument that's made here is that widespread feelings of insecurity at the turn of the 21st century have produced something that's akin to the state of nature against which the state emerges once more as an authoritative source of order. Now, this sort of meta-narrative of the return of a contemporary Leviathan has been challenged on a number of different Levels, And I'm, I want to mention them very briefly here because I do owe, I guess, a great deal of intellectual debt to, to, to the work that's already been done in that area. Um, there has, on the one hand, been the sort of institutional critique of this ne- meta-narrative. I'm thinking of the work of people like Nikki Lacey, Vanessa Bach, but also Zelia Gallo, who've sort of looked at the institutional dynamics that can mitigate the more punitive lawmaking impulses that politicians may otherwise follow. There are also scholars who've sort of criticised this meta-narrative on the level of political ideologies and political cultures or sociology. Um, People have argued for the need to identify, I think, the political ideologies ideologies that inform thinking and action around crime beyond a sort of singular narrative of law and order. And then finally, on the level of citizens, what people have argued is that actually the idea of a uniformly punitive public breaks down when we listen more closely to the views and experiences of actual people. So on all of these different levels, you know, we can see that this sort of meta-account of, of this Leviathan begins to crumble a bit, right, as we take into account sort of more nuanced 
arguments and, and processes. And what I want to do really for the remainder of the paper is build on these criticisms and extend them from an anthropological point of view. Um, and what I want to do is, is, is ask the question of how the portrayal of the return of the Leviathan can be complicated if the perspective of people at the margins is brought into focus. And my starting point for this analysis is the security gaps. This is a term I borrowed from Lisa Miller. Um, the fact that marginalised citizens, that is to say people who live in poor and often minority-dominated neighbourhoods, tend to experience both high rates of victimisation and insufficient or repressive police responses in their day-to-day lives. And what I want to argue is that in ethnographic analysis, an anthropological account of everyday uses of law enforcement officials in these kinds of neighbourhoods ultimately exposes the weaknesses of the state's own claim to authority, and in doing so calls for a reassessment of the relationship between democratic politics and criminal justice. So I'm going to develop this argument in three steps. I'm going to talk a little bit more about what I mean by the security gap um, with reference to my ethnographic data. Um, Then I'm going to look at how people use law enforcement officials in their daily lives and how they don't use them as well. So I'm going to look at how they sometimes draw them in and then expel them again from their daily situations. And then I'm going to turn to the conclusion and sort of scale it up a bit, broaden it out a bit to, to some of the more theoretical points. Okay, I'm now finally turning to the ethnography. <laughs> oh, yeah, great, thank you. Now you can see. Like, yeah, I can see. Okay, so the first section of this paper, um, first ethnographic section, is entitled The Security Gap. During my fieldwork, I became close to Linda and Tony, a couple in their early 30s who were living alongside Linda's two daughters in a small two-bedroom, socially rented house on the edges of the estate. One day I was walking across the estate with Alice, who was Linda's 14-year-old daughter, from their house to the bus stop. And as we were walking along, Alice sort of started telling me spontaneously about the places that were passing around us. At the corner of her street, a neighbour was stabbed last year. He'd been followed by a group of young men from different parts of town and he'd been killed just in front of his house. Alice had been coming home from school that day when she'd seen her street blocked off by police tape. A bit further along the main road, Alice pointed out that a van had gone on fire and she explained to me that her stepfather's ex-wife had heard the explosion when it happened and she'd sort of come out to watch And it turned out that it was an arson attack. Then again, as we were walking along, she sort of pointed over to the other side of the estate and she said, look, this is a part that I avoid going to altogether. And I asked her why, and she said, well, her baby sister's father lived there, but the family was estranged from him. Two years ago, he'd stolen her mother's dog and sold it to another resident on the estate. Alice and her family would sometimes still see the dog around, but Alice's Mother feared that he might get violent, and so nobody wanted to do anything about it. Lots of stuff is happening around here, she said. I don't know why people still come out. Now, Alice's work spoke of a sort of local topology of danger, and I know that sounds a bit pretentious, but I couldn't really think of a better way of putting it, a sort of local way, a sort of geographical way of mapping out danger or, or risk um, that she associated with the neighbourhood that she'd lived in almost her entire life. 
And as I sort of discovered over time, as I sort of became closer to people around me, um, Alice's experiences were not unusual. So young girls and boys growing up on the estate learned that the place that they lived in was full of hidden dangers, or as Alice put it, lots of stuff is happening around here. Now I think what's important to understand is that Alice's words were not just a statement about victimisation, right, that she feared at the hands of a neighbour, a group of men, or her mother's ex-partner. It was crucially also a reflection, I think, of the police's inability to keep residents safe from crime and violence. Take the example of local drug dealers. Many residents on the estate felt that the police were failing to do anything about local drug dealers who were trading heroin and crack cocaine on street corners and from certain houses which um, people refer to as drug dens, exposing nearby residents to the threat of street violence and a politics of intimidation and fear. For example, when I asked Tony, so Alice's stepfather, about the stabbing that had occurred on his street, that Alice had described to me on that walk we, we had, he explained to me that the murdered man had been a local drug dealer who many residents on the street had repeatedly complained about to the authorities. They'd wanted to get him evicted from his house that so he was living in a social um, tenancy. The authorities hadn't done anything about it, and the authorities' failure to intervene in this particular case was evidence of the police's lack of interest in the neighbourhood and the people who lived in it. They don't, care, they don't care about us here was a sentence I frequently heard people use. Now, people's complaints about the lack of adequate policing may come as a surprise, given what I just said about the new Labour government's um, initiatives, right, and the kind of whole tough-on-crime agenda. Um, and I just want to explain this briefly because the police were a highly visible actor on the estate. Um, in the early 2000s, a permanent police station had opened up at the heart of the estate, right next to the main pub, so the pub was on the one side um, and the community centre on the other side, and the shops are just sort of opposite the police station. And that was a big change. So, you know, people would tell me, you know, back in the olden days, you know, to see a blue light flash, to see a police car, meant that something really, really bad must have happened. And these days, they're just everywhere. And it's true, they were everywhere on a daily basis. You'd see police officers patrolling the streets by foot, bike, car, sometimes even horses, which I thought was really strange when I first saw it. Um, helicopters, police helicopters, you know, sort of hovering um, over the estate several nights a week. CCTV cameras were installed in major public places and mosquitoes as well, which is a name given to, um, to um, these devices that basically that, that are meant... That, well, they, they let out a high-pitched sound that only young people are meant to hear because their ears are more sensitive to them. And the idea of it is that it basically deters young people from congregating in public place, places. So, you know, the, the kind of presence of law and order was very much felt on the estate on a daily basis. But, and this is what residents told me, what they felt is that most of the police's attention was disproportionately focused on local youth. Um, Aspects were given to young men, both black and white, on account of their disorderly behaviour, and they were often subject to curfews, injunction orders and random stop and searches. I mean, this is something that other people have worked about, so this is a known story. Early on, um, I became privy to what that meant in practice. Um, in my first host family, which was a sort of uh, a white English family with four children, Taryn, the 15-year-old, was regularly stopped and sometimes searched by the police. 
the police would tell him that he risked getting, getting an injunction order for acting like he was in a gang. I quote Taryn. <coughs> that is to say, for walking around with a group of teenage friends in ways that appeared threatening to the authorities. Now, Tyrant's own explanation of what was going on there was that it was down to them wearing their hoods up, which meant that their faces couldn't easily be seen by the police. Tyrant knew that an injunction order would restrict his movements in the neighbourhood and his freedom to associate with others, crucially with his closest friends and potentially also his family members. Um, what small potential criminal record would place his family's tenancy at risk as it constituted a valid ground for evicting a family from a socially rented property. So, for many residents then, the, the police's sort of lack of care, at least as they experienced it, didn't refer, I think, to an outright absence of law and order. It was rather a reflection of the police's failure to deal with pressing problems of crime as residents experience them in their day-to-day lives. They criminalise kids for being kids, and meanwhile they do nothing about serious crime, um, was something that Mandy once said to me in frustration. Now, Mandy was a local resident in her 30s, late 30s, who found that the police's failure to intervene with problems of drug dealing on her street ended up having horrendous consequences on her life. Um, just to explain her story very briefly, what had happened to her is sort of a few months earlier, Mandy and her neighbours had called the police about a drug den um, on her street. And Mandy was basically worried that her teenage son would get involved with the local drug dealing activities because he'd sort of started spending lots of time in and around the flat and was sometimes seen the company of people that she didn't consider to be trustworthy. Um, the police didn't really do anything about the drug den, but meanwhile her fears became true. Um, so one night, um, Mandy heard a knock on her door, and when she opened, she was dragged into a car by two masked men, and it turned out that her son had an outstanding debt with um, the drug dealer, so one of the masked men was a drug dealer, and he was unable to pay his debt. So instead of her son, Mandy was now driven to a cash machine and forced to withdraw £200. For Mandy, the police's failure to do anything about the drug dealing before things could escalate was evidence of the police's hypocrisy. It stood in stark contrast to their heavy-handed approach to young people who she and others related to as their sons, their children's friends and their next-door neighbours. So, I hope you can sort of see what I'm trying to get at when I talk about this sort of security gap. It's really just the idea that residents like Mandy, Taran and Alice are vulnerable both to being the victims of quite serious crime and violence just by being or living in a neighbourhood uh, where crime is commonplace as well as to becoming the targets of potential police harassment and police control. And so it comes as no surprise, I think, that many people speak about the police and the kind of criminal justice system more broadly in very negative terms. They say that they're anti-police, that's the term I often heard, you know, we're anti-police here, um, and that they would never collaborate with the police, something that I also witnessed. So one of the things that the police did quite a lot when I was doing my first feet work was they sort of did mm, public sort of surgeries and events where they sort of turned up and they invited residents to come and report issues of antisocial behaviour and crime, sometimes in partnership with other local authorities. Um, and these were extremely badly attended events. You know, People just wouldn't want to come and collaborate with the police. Um, 
saying that they wouldn't want to do the police's job for them. You know, it was not their job to 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 grasp up on their neighbours. Um, but I think what's important, and this is where I'm coming now to the second part of my paper, these sorts of negative attitudes towards the police didn't actually preclude residents from engaging with the police on their own terms. On the contrary, as I got to know people more closely, I also became aware of the various ways in which residents appropriated local officials into daily disputes with their family members, neighbours and friends. And sometimes these were the very same people who'd said to me, you know, we're anti-police, we wouldn't, you know, we're not going to call the police, we're not going to collaborate with the police. And so just to sort of unpack this a little bit more, I'm now going to turn to the next part of my paper, which I call Personalised Uses of Law and Order, which gives a sort of ethnographic discussion of the way in which people do draw the police into these daily situations. Okay. Um... In a predominantly Afro-American neighborhood in Philadelphia, Alice Goffman, in her book On the Run, has recently shown that shifts towards more punitive policing styles have also created what she calls a social fabric in which family members, girlfriends and neighbors deploy the police's power to suit their own ends. They use the threat of police arrest and of incarceration itself to exercise pressure and social control over people who are close to them. In a similar manner on the estates where I worked, the presence of criminal justice agents and their repressive presence in people's lives had also created a social arena in which people could engage them in the pursuit of personal goals. And I was first made aware of this while listening to a conversation that took place between two women, I call them Tracy and Kate. Now, Tracy and Kate were local women in their 30s who'd raised their teenage sons as single mothers. And Tracy was running um, a successful informal drop-in centre at the community centre that offered informal advice and assistance to residents on a range of matters. And on the day in question, Kate recounted an episode from when her son Luke, who's a 15-year-old, had turned her life into what she called a living hell. And this is what she told us. So one day, Luke, her son, had started swearing in front of his six-year-old brother and being rude to his mother and even threatened to smash up her TV. And I think he actually proceeded then to, 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 to do damage to the TV. And the two had started arguing in the house, and Kate described how she'd finally lost it with him. And she said to him, if you want to fight, you and me can do it, but well, we'll do it in the street. And she'd, and she'd sort of dragged him out of the house. In the meantime... I don't quite know how, but in the meantime, Luke had phoned 999, the police's emergency number, claiming domestic violence because he was scared. Um, Kate said that she would beat him up. When the police turned up, the two had indeed been fighting on the street. Kate told the police that she wanted to get him done for criminal damage, presumably because he'd smashed up her TV. Um, She told me that the police took the boy to the police station, but no charges were issued. Uh, Kate uh, record, after that he went to live with his dad for two years and now he's a lovely boy, we get on so well. Now, Kate was telling Tracy this story by way of giving her advice, okay? Tracy at the time was herself experiencing problems with her own teenage son um, who dropped out of um, college, he started drinking and he sort of failed to contribute rent payment to his mother's house. And that really was a problem for Tracy because she, she herself was on low income and the fact that her son had dropped out of college 
meant that certain benefits had been stopped. So she was left um, with not enough money to pay her rent. Um, so it was a really serious situation she was encountering. Now, Kate's advice to Tracy was firm. She said, kick him out of the house and call the police if he comes back. A few weeks after the conversation between the two women had taken place, Tracy did ring the police when her son came home in the early hours of the morning and was banging on her front door, um, and he was very drunk. She reported him for vandalism. Her son left before the police arrived. I don't know, I think the police might have only arrived the next day, and her son had left by then. Um, But Tracy was satisfied that she'd managed, as she said, to shit him up. Now, over the following months... um, I became aware of the ways in which residents used law enforcement officials in various ways to handle daily dispute situations with their children, their kin members, their lovers, and their next-door neighbours. Sometimes, these kinds of engagements with the police operated merely in the realm of threat. So what I mean by that is that a woman might threaten, for example, the father of her children, that she report him to the police for handling stolen goods or for drug dealing, if he doesn't provide her with um, payments towards the children or if he doesn't do certain things she wants him to do. In other situations, the threat was actualized or acted upon, like in the situations I've just described. And there are many more situations I encountered. Um, I can talk about them later where it wasn't just mothers using the police in relation to their own teenage sons, but teenage children doing it in relation to their parents as well, um, lovers or neighbours doing it to one another. Um, now, these sorts of examples might seem perhaps silly or petty from the outside, and this is certainly how the police viewed them. So I did interviews with members of the neighborhood policing team who were willing to be interviewed, um, and they tended to see these sorts of incidents as evidence of broken communities and apathy um, and, you know, the decline of, you know, um, social order, really, amongst residents. For them, the situation was a distraction from what they considered to be their real policing priorities, and some officials mentioned that they were a waste of police time. Um, I think a different perspective is also possible, right? A perspective which starts from the assumption that the objective of these encounters was not to enforce any kind of idea of legalistic order which is, I think, what the police are assuming when they complain about it being a waste of police time. Granted, residents did invoke, often in these situations, a sort of official or legalistic language. So they would use a language of vandalism or criminal damage or breach of bail conditions um, when they were sort of making phone calls to the police. But I think what was going on here is that the sort of official legalistic language was a way of framing personalised disputes as they sought to punish an unruly son, to exercise control over an ex-partner, or to take revenge on a parent whose behaviour one didn't approve of. What they then cared about were their everyday relations, the loyalties that they felt they had towards loved ones, towards family members and neighbours, and the commitments that had been broken in particular situations. So, in short then, what I'm trying to say here is that I think we can sort of see a picture emerging where the state is used as as an arena for the pursuit of these sort of daily social relations that don't quite map onto what the state thinks um, law and order is all about. And what I want to do now is sort of take this thought a little bit further and, 
And so for the final ethnographic part of this paper, I want to turn to a further set of social constellations that also don't fit quite neatly with the state's own understanding of order. And these are situations of more serious threat or violence, the kinds of situations that I started my paper with when I talked about the security gap, in which residents often expel officials from the conflicts that they're experiencing. Okay, And then I'm going to come to some conclusions. So this um, ethnographic section is called State Failure. Okay, let me begin by giving you um, an example again. Vera was a woman of Afro-Caribbean descent in her early 40s with three children. I met her when one day she came into the community centre where I'd been volunteering for over a year by that time. And we got chatting and after a while she started telling me about an incident she'd experienced a few months earlier. Uh, During this incident she'd called the police. And this happened basically after her pet cat had been taken and killed by a fighting dog. The owner of the dog was a local teenager called Dane, who was well known to the police for his antisocial behaviour, that is to say his involvement in petty crime, although many residents also believed that he was a local drug dealer, something that the police didn't really focus on. Vera subsequently agreed to give a witness statement in court that resulted in Dane receiving an ASPO that banned him from entering certain places of the estate, including where some of his own family members lived. The day after the court hearing... Um, Vera described to me how residents had stopped her on the streets when she was on her way to do her daily shopping. She said, it took me hours to do my shopping because everyone congratulated me for speaking up. However, the tables turned when Vera left for a short holiday. In her absence, her house and the front yard were vandalised and someone had spray-painted grass on the front door. Neighbours confirmed Vera's suspicion when she got back that the attack had come from Dane's family. Remember, Dane was banned from seeing some of his family members on the estate. Now, Vera never obtained official proof of this, whether that was true or not, but she just decided for herself that she wouldn't go back to the police. And when she was talking to me about it, she explained, I don't want to do nothing, I'm scared, I just don't want to call the police anymore. Now, in this particular instance, Vera decided to abandon police involvement halfway through the process. As the dispute with her neighbour took on more threatening dimensions, as Dane's family had become involved, her trust in the police's ability to act as an ally and to protect her had faded. Vera's decision in this situation to withdraw and to keep her head down, as she said, um, something that was also evident in the way residents like Alice or Mandy, I spoke about them earlier, um, was a sort of um, decision that I saw uh, that, that residents adopted in these kinds of situations. But not everyone chose that course of action. In, course, uh, in, in fact, sorry, as people let me into their lives, I frequently encountered that the opposite could also be encouraged. For example, one day I saw Tracy, who was running the community centre, giving advice to Pete, an older resident in his 60s, who, for reasons that he claimed were unknown to him, had become prey to the vicious behaviour of his next-door neighbours. Tracy, who felt sorry for Pete, advised that he call the police, but quickly added that if they failed to uh, to protect him or to help him, he should come back to her. And then she added with a smile which was directed at Kate, who happened to be in the room, if the law won't finish him off, we will. We'll go around to their house and tell them that we're from the big families on the estate and they can't fuck with us. 
Now, I think Tracy was joking when she said this, um, although she did take pride in the fact that she was from a very well-known Afro-Caribbean family whose members were active in the local church, the community centre, and in running the local pub. But underlying her joke was a reality where the use of informal networks was routinely mobilised in situations of danger. And similar to the moral economy of violence that has been described by Karen Dinos et al., in a poor um, neighborhood in Philadelphia. What I encountered was that residents expected their friends and kin to act as allies against threats, and these expectations could be instrumentalized in the pursuit of illegal force. For example, Ray was a local resident in his 50s who'd fallen out with his next-door neighbor, a well-known local drug dealer. Ray decided not to call the police after his neighbor had threatened his wife and his kids on numerous occasions, because he suspected that his neighbour worked as an informant for the police. Now, the word informant was used by residents quite loosely to refer to people who they considered to be immune from police intervention, presumably because they had been bought off um, um, by the police in exchange for information that they had given them. Um, on this particular occasion, Ray um, instead um, mobilised his mates, all big glo- uh, blokes, he said to me, to come round one evening and to threaten his neighbour with their presence, including threats with a baseball bat. I could have gone to prison for it, he told me, but at least I would have known that my family is safe. For Ray then, the risk of criminalisation was counterbalanced against the protection that he needed to offer to keep his family safe. Now, the point to emphasise is that it's precise in these sorts of situations, I think, that the state's ability to inflict violence becomes a desirable quality as it is imagined as a threat that can be used as a leverage against an enemy. For example, Vera and many other residents were of the opinion that Asbos lacked teeth. The threat of corporal punishment, boot camps and forced labour would all be more adequate forms of deterrence than a simple civil injunction order. Residents also frequently complained in this context that they wanted more policing. Sometimes, and I think this is quite interesting, demands for more punitive measures could also take on the form of collective action and mobilise pre-existing networks of neighbourhood relations. Um, And this is perhaps best illustrated in the example of a local grassroots movement that I've written about in another article, so I'm not going to focus about it in depth here, but just to say very briefly, in the early 2000s, um, on one of the estates, a local independent party had become active on the estate and managed to mobilise a modest amount of electoral success um, in the local town hall. And this party was led by Tony, who was the stepfather of Alice, with whom I started my presentation. Um, he was a bus driver, and he previously worked in the car factory. And what Tony and his friends um, had done in the early 2000s is they basically um, decided that because the local authorities were failing to police these quite serious situations of threat, it was time to take the law into their own hands. So they'd gone tough on local criminals by organising pickets outside individuals' houses, sometimes for 24 hours at a time, collecting their own CCTV evidence and patrolling the streets um, and threatening suspects. Now this had given the party the reputation for being uh, a reputation for being vigilantes, and local authority bodies were accusing them of being extremist and anti-democratic. Tony himself, um, who was one of the local councillors for the party, when he was commenting on these activities, he said to me, 
our world is a world where you do or get done. If we don't do it to them, they do it to us. We live in that kind of world. But the people in law, they don't understand that you can't solve a problem by being wishy-washy. Middle-class liberalism is the bane of our lives. Okay, I'm just... It's 20 past. I'm just going to come to conclusions now. And um, I'm just going to mention three main points that I think are sort of raised by, by this presentation. Um, first, the paper I've presented um, is intended as an ethnographic portrayal of everyday uses of law and order on a council estate in England. Um, it doesn't claim to be exhaustive of all kinds of police-citizen interactions, nor do I claim that it's necessarily representative of other places, although I think there is some ethnographic evidence from other places that suggest similar kinds of engagements. Rather, what I've tried to do is to ask the question of what kind of picture of um, the state emerges when we take as our point of departure citizens' own understandings of the authorities and what role they perform in their day-to-day lives. I think what my analysis has shown, well, I hope my analysis has shown, that people appropriate the state in their daily disputes with neighbours, kin, lovers and children in ways that don't easily align with what the law considers rightful or lawful, uh, or its opposite. Um, And then there are other cases where officials are expelled from disputes, especially in situations of more serious threat. Residents tend to withdraw from official interventions, sometimes in favour of mobilising their own informal networks of collective violence. Now, when speaking to police officers and other local authority bodies, um, my sense was that they sort of struggled to make sense of the situation, or maybe they didn't want to engage with this. They tended to describe the former case of the situation where people draw the police into their daily lives as a situation of civilians wasting police time, whereas the latter case, where people withdraw from police um, support in these more serious situations of threat, are then described as vigilante or anti-democratic. I think what an ethnographic analysis can do is really sort of mitigate against these labels by uncovering people's own logic for using or rather not using the authorities in any given situation. Having said that, I do think that the picture presented here poses a puzzle. It doesn't fit with dominant narratives of the Leviathan in contemporary theories of punishment that see the state as a generative source of order that citizens draw upon for their protection and the protection of their property. From the perspective of dominant theories of punishment, it seems illogical to say that citizens on the margins may involve the police in less serious dispute situations but mistrust the forces of law and order where threats to their safety may be more serious and acute. Peter Ramsey has critiqued the image of the Leviathan in debates on the punitive turn. For him, policymakers and politicians admit their own lack of authority when they assume that the law's representative citizen is characterised by their vulnerability, something that hops saw as being a central feature of the state of nature that the state was meant to eliminate in the first place. I think my analysis speaks to this point by demonstrating that from the perspective of law's own subjects, the return of a Leviathan may be a myth. For the the residents of the estates, at least, the state is at best personalised as an ally and at worst appears as a sort of public enemy, rather something they want to avoid. And here I come then to my second point. I think in light of these criticisms, perhaps it's time to adopt a different understanding of social order, one which doesn't start with the privacy (coughs) of the state. 
Anthropologists of the state and of policing have long questioned the dominant narrative of the state as an entity that sits above society and that dispenses order from the top down. Anthropological analysis have mainly focused <coughs> on the global south, so I'm thinking here of the work of people like Ollie Owen's work on policing in Nigeria, um, but there's also other stuff uh, on South Africa, Brazil, um, where authors have shown that citizens do draw the state into their daily words, even if, or perhaps especially when the state um, is known to them to be hostile and repressive. And I think a sort of comparative focus on police-citizen relations demonstrate that these processes of vernacularization or personalization, as I've called them, are not limited to the case of the Global South. Residents on UK's council estates question dominant categories of order and disorder, of security and insecurity, and of legality and vigilante justice that are all too frequently mapped onto categories of the state and to society, respectively. And in so doing, they also call into question the state's ability, I think, to be the arbiter of these distinctions. So in short, then, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that an ethnographic analysis of state-citizen relations really questions the focus on the primacy of the state in our accounts of law and order or punishment. Now, if my analysis is correct, then I think adopting a different view of social order has implications that go beyond the particularities of the case study presented. And here I want to come to my third and final point. Ethnographic analyses of everyday use of law and order invite a reassessment of the relationship between the public and criminal justice. There has been a tendency in recent commentary to see criminal justice and um, the public as a sort of toxic mix. Yeah? Precise because the public's punitivism is said to be dangerous to an even-handed criminal justice system, what's argued is that sort of interstitial layers of bureaucracy are needed between the public and the criminal justice decision-making process to sort of make sure that the system that we have is even-handed and democratic. And I think my sort of analysis cautions against these calls for professionalization. Um, as we've seen I don't think it makes sense to, to describe residents as uniformly punitive. Um, or rather, we need to unpack what we mean when we talk about the punitive public or popular punitivism. I think to the extent that people do call for more law and order, these calls express a lived reality of high victimization and the state's failure to address the underlying causes of serious violence and threat. And this is something that policymakers ought to take very seriously. I think a more fruitful starting point for the debate may then be to acknowledge that questions about the public, about the state authority and its relationship to criminal justice are always bound to be political question. And this is a suggestion that um, Lisa Miller made recently in, in her new book where she argues that paying attention to the views of at-risk populations can help to move beyond a focus on punitivism alone. She argues, and here I quote her, uh, reshifting the focus helps us to redirect our attention to the political demands of those most at risk of violence, as well as a whole host of other social inequities, including higher rates of exposure to state repressive practices. Now, I think Miller develops these points with a view of improving the economic, social and political lives of citizens who live at the margins. And my analysis pushes the, the, the point, I think taking people seriously on their own terms is vital if we're interested to come up with better policies. 
um, as Miller suggests, for example, reducing repressive policing. But I think it's also important for another reason. It's important, I think, if we're interested um, to um, reinvigorate the public space in the authority of the state to the extent that obviously it was ever there. Now, I think you can ask yourselves why this should be important, right? Does it matter if the public, especially marginalized citizens, have authority in the state? Is it not enough to just have good policies? I mean, who cares if they um, attribute legitimacy to these institutions? Well, I think the reason why it does matter is because questions of state authority and their legitimacy can't be disconnected from democracy writ large. And I think, and I'm going to conclude on this note, this is something that was precisely brought um, into focus by the EU referendum that happened in June last year and that, as you know, um, divided the country um, as um, people voted to leave the European Union by a small margin. Now, many of my friends and informers on the estates count amongst the citizens who came out to vote in favour of leaving the EU, something that has afforded them much criticism in the liberal press and the liberal media. What made people come out on that day, at least the people I've spoken to, my friends and my informants, was the fact that they perceived the EU referendum as an opportunity to reject government in a way that an ordinary election cannot. That is to say, to express what I've called a vote of no confidence in the people who govern them and who don't recognise <coughs> their lived realities and the problems that they encounter. I think anthropologists of crime and criminologists and, you know, in general, theorists and, and academics who are interested in these sorts of issues can make important interventions to, interventions to the debate on democracy and on democracy's future. Um, I think they can do this by showing how people's views of democracy are wrapped up with their daily experiences of citizenship um, as punishment and also by drawing attention to the broader political, economic and social inequities that need to be addressed if democracy is to have a future. Okay, I think I'm going to stop here. Thank you. Thank you. That was perfectly timed. Yeah. Spot on. So, um, I'll call Can on all the... Oh, we